While big oil and big gas are making profits hand over fist and continuing to destroy the environment, they also enjoy unfettered access to politicians and policymakers in the capitalist establishment. Meanwhile, activists trying to defend the environment are being sent to prison for many years, and indigenous communities and frontline water protectors are being targeted with vicious repression. We discuss this, voting rights, the indictment of the Trump Organization, the death of war criminal Donald Rumsfeld, and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's July 6th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. Once you subscribe, make sure to register for the next seminar with Brian next Wednesday, July 14th, at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, there's, as always, a number of stories we want to get to today. So where do you want to start? Well, I think the most important thing is to start with the environment. And as you mentioned, Nicole, in the introduction, activists from all over the country are in the streets. They're also at pipelines. They're putting their bodies and lives on the line. They're trying to stop what appears to be inevitable unless the capitalists are stopped, which is to have climate change or climate catastrophe reach a point where it becomes irreversible and planet Earth is no longer able to sustain human life or human life as we know it. So I think we should start there. I have to mention to our audience, and of course, the three of you know, I'm taking a short break. So I'm in this very wonderful western part of New York State called the Finger Lakes. These are glacially carved out lakes. They look like the fingers on both hands. My family is here with me. Great to be able to see everybody. The environment here is very, very pristine. These glacially carved out lakes are noted for swimming and fishing. They're really a great treasure. So I'm here at Cuca Lake and the nearby closest lake is Seneca Lake, which is the biggest of the Finger Lakes in this historic part of Western New York. Here's the headline from NBC News. Bitcoin mining is turning a New York lake into a hot tub, says a local. Here's how. Summer on Seneca Lake, the largest of the Finger Lakes in upstate New York, is usually a time of boating, fishing, swimming, and wine tasting. But for many residents of this bucolic region, there's a new activity this season, protesting a gas-fired power plant they say is polluting the air and heating the lake. Now, Seneca Lake is a very deep lake, and thus it's a very cold lake. Quote, the lake is so warm, you feel like you're in a hot tub, said Abby Bunnington, a homeowner in Dresden, New York, whose house is near the plant. The facility on the shores of Seneca Lake is owned by a private equity firm, Atlas Holdings, and operated by Greenridge Generation LLC. They have increased the electrical power output at the gas-fired plant in the past year and a half and use much of that fossil fuel energy not to keep the lights on in the surrounding towns, but for energy-intensive mining of Bitcoin. So Seneca Lake, the coldest of the Finger Lakes, now feels like a hot tub, or at least in some areas, because of Bitcoin mining. And again, this shows the irrationality of capitalism, because why should a private equity firm, 
Atlas Holdings, operated by billionaires or multimillionaires, be able to destroy this pristine part of New York State, Western New York, the Finger Lake, Seneca Lake, in order to do Bitcoin mining? So Esther, I mean, it's everywhere. This is the issue of the day everywhere. And I'm just looking again at these Facebook postings by people who are, you know, alarmed by the fact that an underwater gas well has exploded and the Gulf of Mexico has been on fire for several days. Of course, we all remember what happened with BP and the terrible oil spill that went on for months and months and months into the Gulf of Mexico. But anyway, Esther, while this destruction of our planet, our environment by the capitalist class and by the capitalist system goes forward, those who are destroying the environment are getting ever richer. And as Nicole said, those who are trying to defend the environment are actually being sent to prison and not with light sentences. Right. Well, the way I look at it is, you know, just as the uprising against racism is the only real force countering racist police terror, grassroots people's activism is the only force really stopping or giving fierce resistance to these horrible and dangerous gas and oil pipeline projects or like the project that you're talking about warming up Seneca Lake. I remember Seneca, like there was a big struggle around not having a big fracking operation there. So these struggles are ongoing and they're always by the people and the pipeline projects in particular continue the extraction and burning of fossil fuels. Like you mentioned, they worsen the climate catastrophe and in real time right now, they're actually threatening these increasingly scarce and precious water supplies. So I want to talk about some good news at first, you know, on the front line of this type of grassroots people's activism. Um, the good news is that the people of Memphis, Tennessee, particularly the black communities of the Boxtown area are victorious in stopping an oil pipeline project that the Valero and Plains All-American Pipeline companies wanted to build. And that would have cut through their communities and run over the Memphis sand aquifer. And of course, an oil spill would be disastrous for the aquifer, pollute the drinking water of about 1 million people in that region. So this so-called Vihalia connection pipeline would have been 49 miles long and linked two pipelines transporting crude oil to refineries on the Gulf of Mexico. So this is really a special victory for South Memphis. You know, the Boxtown community there was settled in the 1860s by the formerly enslaved. And the community actually got its name because the newly freed people used these scraps of materials and wood from the boxcars, train boxcars to build their homes. And because of environmental racism, this community and others in South Memphis have already been targeted for polluting industries and, you know, just pollution in their area. So the people in coalition with the Southern Environmental Law Center and people all over the Memphis region fighting for their aquifer and for safe drinking water, you know, they were able to say basically no more. And this pipeline was defeated. And this is a victory when community was able to stand up and fight for its right to clean, safe water and win. But, you know, as we've discussed on this show, there are other battles going on, particularly in Minnesota around line three, where this right to fight for your clean water is being denied and the people are being fought on every turn as they try to protect their water. And so, as we've mentioned, the Ashinaabe and other Native American people in northern Minnesota, they're fighting the illegal construction of the Enbridge Line 3 pipeline through their treaty land. And this is at the headwaters of the Mississippi River and Lake Superior. And there are at least three treaty sites where water protectors are leading peaceful protests to stop construction of the pipeline. And they've been met with like scores of arrests last month. And after threatening more arrests last week at one of the sites, the Red Lake Treaty Camp, the Minnesota Department of Public Safety and Minnesota Department of Transportation rescinded a so-called trespass order, allowing the water protectors to stay in the area. And on Friday, the Minneapolis City Council unanimously passed a resolution opposing Enbridge Tar Sands Oil Pipeline. 
And I guess also I should say last week, there were mass demonstrations here in Washington, D.C., and some people from the Line 3 protest came here to protest the Biden administration, especially since they are filing in court an action to really uphold the rights of Enbridge building this pipeline. I think we have a clip of Tasha Martineau of the Fond du Lac Nation who spoke at the western entrance of the White House. I want to ask each and every single one of you if you have the means and the ability to join me in northern Minnesota to protect the Mississippi, to fight for Otter Creek, to protect every single lake and waterway that this corporation is putting at risk because this is all of our water. Every single one of us is a water carrier. The Anishinaabe have have been calling for help and we need you. My auntie Tanya is sitting in a prayer lodge at the Mississippi River, kettled by police. My sister, Tara Huska, at Camp Namayawag, sitting on private property that she owns, kettled by police. We need Ogichidan now. I need you to find that warrior spirit. I need you to come to Minnesota. And I need you to take a stand for humanity. Because this line three is the dying gas of the oil industry, and they know it. And they're scared. Okay, so that was Taisha Martineau speaking last week at the White House. And she mentioned that, you know, law enforcement really cracking down on these legal encampments. People, Native Americans have the legal right, treaty rights to be there and protect their water, to protect the wild rice and the other habitat there that is part of their heritage land that this line three is encroaching upon illegally. And so the battle goes on there. Esther, like you're saying, I mean, there are these fights going on all over the country and on lots of different Native nations. And I want to just talk for a second about one of the fights that Brian mentioned early on in the show. This was about the Dakota Access Pipeline, where there's two women who were indicted in 2019 for their, you know, resisting this corporate expansion and complete, you know, demolition of Native lands, of Native water. And one of them was sentenced last week. Jessica Reznicek and Ruby Montoya were both indicted on nine federal charges. And Jessica was sentenced last week to eight years in prison, eight years in prison. These were two very dedicated activists who were with the Catholic worker, and they worked very, very hard in organizing every possible means they could. They did very similar things to the clip that we heard in, ter- you know, in terms of really trying to get as many people out to the spot as possible to help hold the line against these construction trucks and cranes that were ready to build this pipeline and have oil flowing through these nations. Yeah, these are amazing sentences. Jessica Reznicek has been sentenced to eight years in prison. Now, she had a plea deal. And this is for like minor, you know, vandalism of a pipeline. Nothing big happened. But she was sentenced to eight years in prison by the judge. Now, she originally agreed to a plea for one charge. And there was an agreement with the prosecutor about what the sentence would be. But then the judge came in and used the terrorism enhancement sentencing requirements thus identifying the actions by peaceful, nonviolent protesters at a pipeline, at the Dakota Access Pipeline, as contributing to terrorism, and thus she was sentenced to eight years. I'm looking at an article in Common Dreams. It's written by Brett Wilkins. Here's the headline. Is big oil execs roam free? Climate activists gets eight years in prison. Quote, how many years do you think any fossil fuel CEO will serve for knowingly destroying our planet's climate, asked one climate group. Now, you know, there's the necessity defense that's sometimes argued and activists sometimes want to use it that, yes, we broke the law, but there was a necessity. And the necessity defense is a legal argument. It's accepted by the court. I mean, where else, what would be more relevant than the necessity defense to stop these pipelines, which we know are destroying because they're contributing to the continued use of gas and oil. They are contributing to the destruction of the planet and the politicians are not going to stop it. So this is a necessity defense, but the fact that the government has hit this woman, Jessica, 
with terrorism charges on top of her guilty plea so that they can send her to jail for eight years. The judge said it was very important to do it to send a message to others who might be considering also trying to save the planet. But, you know, the ridiculous thing, I mean, there's so many ridiculous things in this. The other part that's really notable is that these two women, they actually came forward intentionally. They came forward intentionally and fully admitted exactly what they did, not only because they weren't ashamed of trying to, you know, get in the way of these trucks and these demolition equipment, but because they didn't think there was enough press. They hadn't succeeded in stopping the pipeline. So they said, well, you know, the next piece of press we could get is if we come forward and, and try to get arrested for this and try to get prosecuted for this, because this is the only other way to generate a headline. And people, especially in the Catholic worker movement, have done this for decades to really try to stop these kinds of disgusting things from going forward. I also want to add, you know, you talked about the really outrageous sentence of eight years in prison, eight years in prison for trying to stop a pipeline from being built. I think it's in the past week, we've also seen this just really shows the disparities in the criminal justice system where Daniel Hambrick, who was shot in the back by a Nashville cop, by a killer cop, shot in the back. He was sentenced to three years in jail, three years in jail. And what's more, Vicki Hambrick, who's Daniel Hambrick's mom, was not actually consulted on this plea deal. This was a plea deal that the DA in Nashville, Glenn Funk, decided to go ahead and just give to this cop. And Vicki Hambrick had no say in it. So she was irate in court. She was tackled down, essentially, which is absolutely outrageous. I mean, again, you know, with standard jail credits, the cop might serve about a year and a half in jail and would be able to possibly return home without probation or parole. He was facing first degree murder. He was facing first degree murder. And that just shows, you know, this huge disparity. Jessica Resnicek, eight years in prison, and that's in federal prison where there's a lot less time that you get to shave off your sentence. And then Andrew Delkey, who shot somebody in the back, gets, you know, a year and a half or three years. And what's more, the Nashville DA, Glenn Funk, said publicly, he said, this was a conviction. We wanted to get a conviction and we weren't sure that we would be able to actually get a conviction with a jury in Nashville. We weren't sure that we would be able to do that. And we thought we might result in a hung jury. So we decided to go ahead and make this plea deal. The crazy thing is, Brian, I think he's right. I'm not sure they could get a conviction. I mean, this just shows you the insanity of this system where you might not be able to get a conviction for a white killer cop shooting a 25-year-old black man in the back. But of course, I think the other really notable thing here is the fact that there were charges brought in the first place. I mean, even five years ago, there might not have even been any charges. We've seen so many cases where there aren't even any charges brought against these cops. So, you know, it's very clear to me that it's the uprising over the last year that even got us to this point in the first place. I want to go back before we cover some other stories. I want to go back to what's going on in Minnesota, because the point that you're making, Nicole, that as bad as that sentence is for the killer cop, it wouldn't have happened at all without the struggle of the people. And the point isn't that any particular concession from the government is a big enough victory, because none of the victories are big enough, and they can all be taken back in a way. They can all be mitigated by the system. But it proves to people that resistance makes the difference. Now, this is why the judge has sentenced Jessica to eight years in prison. This is why they used enhanced terrorism charges to up her sentence, because they want to make an example out of her. Now, again, they know that if we, the people, organize, if all of the different communities come together and organize, that we can make the difference. I want to go back and talk about what's actually happening, as Esther mentioned in the beginning, with Line 3. Enbridge is the oil company. It's a Canadian company. When the Minnesota sheriffs do anything, like blockade the people in their own properties, and when they arrest people and follow them and harass them, which they're doing nonstop, the Minnesota cops then file a reimbursement form with Enbridge and Enbridge pays the sheriff's departments for all of their expenses. So if they come and beat you up, they can charge that as a chargeable expense to Enbridge and Enbridge is paying for it. So these cops who, you know, they were always told, well, yes, cops have, you know, guns and handcuffs and billy clubs and they have the instruments to hurt you and deprive you of liberty, but it's for the public good. It's for the public good. The public good is so important 
that this like amazing license to use violence against part of the citizenry or part of the public is allowed because of the public good. But here you have Enbridge paying the cops, a private foreign company paying the police in order to crack down on indigenous people and others who are coming there. I want to read an article from about what's actually happened with this latest repression in Minnesota, and then maybe we can turn to another story. Minnesota Sheriff Barricades Pipeline Resistance Camp's Driveway. Now, this is an article written by Eileen Brown. It's in The Intercept. The date is June 28th. Here it is. A Minnesota sheriff's office blocked access Monday morning to one of the protest encampments set up to resist the Enbridge Line 3 tar sands pipeline. This is what Esther was talking about. This is what people were demonstrating about in Washington. And that's why the woman who was on the microphone was urging people, please come to Minnesota. In a notice delivered at 6 a.m. to pipeline opponents who own the property, the Hubbard County Sheriff's Office stated that it would no longer be allowing vehicular traffic on the small strip of county-owned land between the driveway and the road. So they put up a barricade at the end of these people's driveway, denying them access to the road and says, oh, that's an easement and it's county property. They didn't do this ever before. It's only because there's an encampment with activists who are planning to protest the pipeline. Quote, I was handed a notice that states the sheriff will be installing a physical barricade across the driveway to our private property, said Tara Hauska, one of the main activists who's organizing the indigenous community in Minnesota and the others. Quote, he's saying that we have no right to access our private property by vehicle. Can you imagine this? The pipeline opponents, also known as water protectors, plan to take legal action. Quote, this is quite simply nothing less than an overt political blockade, said Mara Verhayden Hilliard, an attorney for the pipeline opponents, and she is the director of the PCJF, the Center for Protest Law and Litigation. And she describes this as an outrageous and unlawful effort to blockade people who are engaged in protected First Amendment activity. The only reason the cops are doing this is they know that if we, the people, are able to overcome the repression, that we can stop line three, that we can make the Biden administration do what the Biden administration right now refuses to do, which is to use its federal authority to stop this pipeline. This is a winnable battle in spite of the repression. I wanted to add before we just totally moved on. I wanted to go back to something that Nicole mentioned in terms of comparing the sentences given to these women, these water protectors, activists, compared to what happens to these CEOs. There's just been damning footage leaked by uh, Exxon executives basically bragging about how they deliberately tried to thwart legislation to help us get out of the catastrophe that they have caused, really. And there are renewed calls for Congress to investigate Exxon. I know I've covered many hearings where people have testified, experts, that these companies like Exxon, these fossil fuel companies, they know the damage that they're doing. But none of these CEOs have ever gone to prison or faced any kinds of charges. And, you know, we can look at this what they're calling the eye of fire out in the Gulf of Mexico, burning from a ruptured gas pipe. You know, it reminds us of the months of oil leaking at the base of the Gulf of Mexico, uh, maybe about a decade ago now. And also the aftermath of the Texas big freeze, all these homeowners are left with homes that they can't repair. And none of those fossil fuel companies that are given the license to supply energy to these Texas homeowners are liable for any of that damage. So I'm just talking about how these CEOs, these corporations are not held liable for the damage that they're doing, not only to their environment, to the water, but to people's livelihood and their homes. They're not being held accountable in the way that these activists are. Indeed. That was the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. That was in April 2010. I was involved along with others in the Answer Coalition. We launched a nationwide campaign called Seize BP because not only were they destroying the Gulf of Mexico through their negligence 
and through their cover-up, not only did people get killed, workers get killed, but entire communities all along the Gulf were basically unable to keep functioning. The whole hospitality industry, the seafood industry destroyed for like a couple of years. And again, you know, the government is always there. They forced BP finally because of public pressure to pay some of the claims. But, you know, BP in these criminal enterprises, also called capitalist corporations, should be seized because they're based on illegal activity. It's a criminal enterprise. Talking about illegal activity, Walter, and criminals, I want to turn to Donald Rumsfeld. Donald Rumsfeld, former Secretary of Defense during the first George W. Bush administration, and for a couple of years afterwards, he has died. Yeah, that's right. I mean, truly one of the worst monsters in recent memory, Donald Rumsfeld has died, a horrific war criminal, somebody who is responsible for the implementation of torture on a mass scale by U.S. authorities as part of the so-called war on terror, responsible for all sorts of terrible atrocities. And he had a very long record of service to the U.S. empire. He was the Secretary of Defense under George W. Bush. That's what he's most known for, the infamous architect of the invasion of Iraq. But even going back to 1975, I mean, he was the Secretary of Defense for the Ford administration. He was also the chief of staff. So, I mean, this is a guy who spent his entire life in service to U.S. empire, inflicting terrible death and destruction all around the world. I mean, you know, now that he's died, I mean, it's worth remembering some of those crimes because, of course, you know, the crimes of empire are always, always swept under the rug unless people shine light on them. Just to jump in, Walter, remember when Obama came in and everybody was demanding that these war criminals who were responsible for more than a million deaths in Iraq and tens of thousands of American soldiers who either died or had life-changing injuries, demanding that they be, you know, brought to justice, that they be charged for war crimes and crimes against humanity. And Obama, as all U.S. presidents do under these circumstances, say, well, no, let's move forward. We can't look backward. As if you can kill people if you're a government official and you won't be held account because now it's time to move forward. Anyway, go ahead. That's right. That's right. I mean, the Obama's administration's position towards Rumsfeld and all of the Bush era war criminals, including George W. Bush himself, was total impunity. They got away with it. They got away with it. And I mean, just to zero in on one of his crimes, his most infamous crime, the Iraq war, you know, not only did it result in, like you said, over a million deaths, all things considered, um, when you take into account the people who died, for instance, in the U.S. instigated sectarian civil war that was a direct result of the occupation's divide and conquer strategies. You know, Donald Rumsfeld also, in the run-up to that war, constructed one of the most monstrous lies of the 21st century, the idea that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. Let's listen to this clip by Donald Rumsfeld insisting that that's true. We know they have weapons of mass destruction. We know they have active programs. There, there isn't any debate about it. So, so the idea that if you had an appropriate inspection regime, uh, that they'd come back and say you were wrong is is um, so far beyond anyone's imagination that it's not something I think about. It's not something he thinks about. He doesn't even think about it. Of course, that's all not true. He knew that Iraq didn't have weapons of mass destruction. George W. Bush knew. And millions of other people around the world knew that because they went out into the streets and protested. And I believe is the largest wave of anti-war protests in terms of number of people attending ever. So the idea that there was no debate about it, completely ridiculous. But by repeating this lie that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction over and over again, he was able to put a fig leaf on what was just a completely wanton act of U.S. aggression that was opposed by millions of people taking to the streets all around the world. So the invasion, you know, he also said, you know, Rumsfeld had all these famous, ridiculous sayings. One was that he insisted that the Iraq war would take six days, six weeks, I doubt six months. But of course, it turned into this ongoing bloody conflict that claimed hundreds and hundreds of thousands of lives and involved many 
particular horrific massacres like the destruction of the city of Fallujah and a colonial style act of revenge for the killing of U.S. mercenaries using depleted uranium shells that so irradiated the city that women who were pregnant had terrible, horrific birth defects. And there is also the destruction of so much of Iraq's culture, ancient culture that's of tremendous value to the entire world. The U.S. occupation forces, after they overthrew the government of Iraq, which is an independent government not in the service of U.S. empire, they essentially stood back as some of the most important treasures of antiquity housed in the great museums of Iraq were looted. And this clip is Donald Rumsfeld reacting to a question from a reporter about the looting of antiquities and ancient artifacts. Stuff happens, and it's untidy, and freedom's untidy, and free people are free to make mistakes, and commit crimes, and do bad things. They're also free to to, to live their lives, and and do wonderful things, and that's what's going to happen here. So yeah, stuff happens, untidiness. That's how Rumsfeld in typical arrogant colonial fashion referred to that. And finally, I just want to say that Rumsfeld's crimes would have been, could have been so much worse had the U.S. invasion, the U.S. military not been stopped in its tracks by the Iraqi resistance because Rumsfeld's goal was not just domination of Iraq, but global domination. He was part of a think tank called the Project for a New American Century that essentially put forward a strategy for the United States to take out all of the independent governments of the Middle East, control the world's energy supply, and on that basis have complete domination over the world order in the 21st century. That was Rumsfeld's dream. Yeah, you know, there's a couple of things that I want to comment about your commentary, Walter, and because this is such an important thing for people to remember, and there's so many different like nuances to the struggle. One is that the Iraqi government might have been willing to be at the service of U.S. empire. Certainly they did that when they launched the invasion of Iran in 1980, after the Iranian Revolution of 1979. And the U.S. government, the Carter administration, was supporting and suggesting, telling Iraq, go for it, because they wanted to weaken the Iranian Revolution, because the Iranian Revolution had really devastated a pillar of U.S. foreign policy in this resource-rich area, the Middle East. So they said, go for it. And Iraq went for it. Saddam Hussein was convinced that a quick lightning strike against Iran would capture parts of Iran, the Arabic-speaking part, especially Abadan, which is very oil-rich and close to Iraqi territory. And Rumsfeld, by the way, in 1983, was Ronald Reagan's special Middle East envoy, and he met with Saddam Hussein the day after the world learned that the Iraqi government had used chemical weapons against the Iranian troops. Now, chemical weapons are barred by international law. The Iraqis used them because the Iranians had a far larger military force. The Iraqi war had been bogged down. Saddam Hussein used chemical weapons against a large number of Iranian troops. The next day, the Middle East envoy, Donald Rumsfeld, shows up in Baghdad. Again, remember, the day after the report that Iraq had used chemical weapons, and he hugs Saddam Hussein. There's pictures of him. I have those photos. Him embracing Saddam Hussein while the whole world is like, oh my God, Iraq is using chemical weapons. So in a way, the Iraqi government was willing to play ball with U.S. imperialism. But what Rumsfeld represented, and this is what you were talking about with the evolution of what we learned to call the neocon strategy, was that as the Soviet Union was unraveling and as the Soviets Finally, you know, the Soviet Union disappeared and the U.S. was the unipolar power in the world. Rumsfeld and the other neocons decided that they could start taking out all of the governments who had their origin in the anti-colonial project. So Iraq, Syria, Somalia, Lebanon, and ultimately Iran. So the invasion of Iraq was really because they were on a plan to reorganize the Middle East under the control of American proxy governments. None of that turned out to be realistic. I mean, they also took out Libya in 2011, same sort of thinking. But what's important is that, as you mentioned, Donald Rumsfeld said the war will end in 
weeks or a couple months, but not six months. And one way he was also representing the military calculations of the Pentagon, within three weeks, the Iraqi government was destroyed. April 9th, 2003, just a few weeks after the March 19th, 2003 invasion, the overwhelming number of American and British troops destroyed the Iraqi government and dispersed it. And so the imperialists like Rumsfeld thought, see, we won. And, you know, George W. Bush got on the aircraft carrier, the Abraham Lincoln, and a big banner over his head. This was on May 1st. And the banner read, mission accomplished. And so they were all gloating. Bush's approval ratings started going up again. Rumsfeld was considered kind of a genius for a couple of days. But then the other element, which you also referred to, but I want to put it in its right chronology, is the Iraqi people, even though the government was destroyed, the Iraqi people, as a people who had lived under colonialism, were never going to go back and live again under colonial domination. And so the imperialists, including Rumsfeld, did not anticipate the guerrilla war, the civil resistance, the armed resistance that came and finally defeated the occupiers in Iraq. And so Rumsfeld is not only a war criminal, but his miscalculations are so obvious that you would think he would be ripped to shreds in obituaries, but instead those obituaries from the imperialist media say, Rumsfeld, a colorful and controversial character, et cetera, et cetera. Again, telling the truth about these historical figures and their role could not, could not be more important. And just as a quick aside, I don't want our listeners to think that the death and destruction that he caused was limited to his time in the government because he also used the revolving door to become the head of two different pharmaceutical corporations, one of which he finagled into a deal to sell to Monsanto, the company that we know has now come under lots of fire for, you know, knowingly putting out products that cause widespread cancer. And then the other, he was also the head of Gilead Sciences, which around that time, it's now looking very clear because of many lawsuits, they went ahead and stopped work on a successful HIV prevention drug that they had. It was a secondary drug. They'd already put out the first one. And the first one caused very severe and permanent and debilitating damage to bones and kidneys of the many people who had HIV at the time. And they had a successful second drug, but they wanted to continue making their profits from the first. So they put a stop on that. And we're now getting documents out showing that that's the case. So, you know, he really used that revolving door to continue really maiming people in all parts of the world. Esther, let's talk about other ridiculously bad people in high places. I'm thinking of the Supreme Court. Supreme Court's in session. They've been active. Yeah. Last week, the Supreme Court had a, I guess I call it a trifecta. They had their infamous ruling further gutting the Voting Rights Act. They upheld Arizona's new election law that bans out-of-precinct voting, and it forbids the bulk collection of ballots to be delivered at a polling place. Like, for example, people living on remote Native American reservations would collect their ballots in bulk and deliver them to a polling site, which may be very far from where they're located. So these two rulings are expected to further gut the Voting Rights Act. There's a law professor, Rick Hansen. He's at the University of California. He told NBC News that the ruling would significantly dilute the Voting Rights Act. He said minority groups will now have to meet a much higher standard beyond showing that a change presents a burden to voting. It puts a thumb on the scale for the states. Writing for the majority, Justice Samuel Alito said the law requires equal openness to the voting process and that mere inconvenience cannot be enough to demonstrate a violation of the law. So basically this, you know, this is the first thing that the Supreme Court did. And another ruling, they made it okay for this kind of dark money, what we call dark money in elections to kind of not be disclosed under California law. And so a lot of experts say that this will basically mean that these mega donors like the Koch brothers or Sherman Adelson, you know, they would be able to just give this unlimited money to candidates and basically allow money to continue to rule, have this outsized role in American elections. In the third ruling, 
the Penn East Pipeline Company in a dispute with New Jersey, the court decided that this private company can seize land owned by the state to build a private natural gas pipeline. And they said that the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is really known as an industry stamp, really, that they granted Penn East a so-called Certificate of Public Convenience in 2018. And they upheld this saying that this company can seize this public land kind of like under public eminent domain and that they threw out this lawsuit by the state. The pipeline may not go forward though, because there are other lawsuits about this case, but the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the pipeline company. Let's go to another big story. We have a couple more and I think they're really, really important Walter, you must have noticed how the intelligence services and the Pentagon have reassessed, and this is just in a matter of a couple of weeks, their view of what's likely to happen with the existing Afghan government once American troops and American forces are pulled out. And also, the U.S. military left Bagram Air Base, the biggest air base, the air base which has really been in many ways the headquarters of U.S. military operations, left that air base in Afghanistan and didn't mention it to the Afghan government first. Anyway, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, it seems like the top planners in the Pentagon and the State Department are, are essentially building it into their calculations that it's highly likely the Taliban will take over Afghanistan pretty shortly after the United States withdraws from the country. And by the way, I think that you know that would happen if it comes to pass, not necessarily because of the popularity of the Taliban itself or its political program or its reputation, but because of how completely delegitimized the Afghan authorities are being seen rightfully as nothing but a puppet installed by the U.S. occupation forces and sustained over all these years. But yeah, I mean, the military developments in Afghanistan have been really dramatic the last few days and few weeks. The official estimates are now that the Taliban controls about one third of the districts in Afghanistan, and then they contest many, many other districts as well. They've also seized strategically key locations. For instance, they seized the main border crossing between Afghanistan and its neighbor to the north, Tajikistan. They are making military gains in areas that are outside of their traditional strongholds. The Taliban has historically been strong in the south of the country, but a lot of these major military gains that they're making are concentrated in the north of the country. And, you know, I mean, if people remember way back 20 years ago when when this forever war initially began, you know, the U.S. media was always talking about the Northern Alliance, right? The Northern Alliance, you know, lionizing these groups that had, you know, not that different politics than the Taliban, but organizations that were fighting against the Taliban and supported by the United States. It was called the Northern Alliance because they were based in the north of the country, which is ethnically Tajik and Uzbek predominantly, as opposed to the majority Pashtun South. Uh, but that is where the Taliban right now are making some of their biggest gains. They still generally control rural areas, and the major cities of Afghanistan have not yet begun to fall to their offensive. But it seems like it may only be a matter of time before that happens. And and you're absolutely right, Brian. I mean, the evacuation of Bagram Air Force Base, the sort of key linchpin of the U.S. military presence in Afghanistan for so many years, also a notorious torture center as well, that is now being vacated. And the United States may, you know, there's debates, of course, going on within the Pentagon about whether or not they would re-engage in Afghanistan if they would reinitiate a bombing war, for instance, of the country if the Taliban closed in on the capital, Kabul. But it seems like the perspective of the Afghan government's survival is just diminishing by the day. One thing about the Taliban that's important for people to know is that the Taliban had a working relationship with the United States before September 11th, including with the George W. Bush administration. The George W. Bush administration actually gave the Taliban government, which was in power at that time, tens of millions of dollars as a sort of reward for its pledge to stop opium cultivation. U.S. hosted Taliban officials in the United States, including in Texas prior to September 11th. The Taliban are not only ideologically reactionary, they're not only you know, the far right of political Islam, 
They're also a pro-capitalist government in the U.S., as we can see from its relationship with Saudi Arabia, for instance, which, you know, from a theocratic and ideological and political point of view, is not far different from what the Taliban stand for. The U.S. was perfectly willing and is perfectly willing to work with regimes like this. They just have to come to an understanding. It was only because the attack by al-Qaeda on September 11th that took down the World Trade Towers and also attacked the Pentagon was such a huge blow to the U.S. military position. Not that it was a strategic blow, but it was certainly made the American government look very, very vulnerable and very insecure. The U.S. absolutely had to take military action. And so when the Bush administration said to the Taliban, hand over Osama bin Laden, who was there as a guest, you know, he was the leader of al-Qaeda or one of them there as a guest of Afghanistan. When they said, hand him over, the Taliban said, as a Muslim government, we're willing to turn him over to a third party, to a Muslim third party for trial if you give us any evidence that, in fact, al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden is responsible for the attacks of September 11th, to which George W. Bush said, we don't negotiate with terrorists. The U.S. invaded Afghanistan. The Taliban was dispersed. The U.S. didn't make a serious effort to chase after them because the U.S. priority was, going back to our earlier discussion, to begin the neocon project, which was to take out Iraq and Syria and Somalia and Libya and Lebanon, and finally Iran, because these were the anti-colonial governments whose origin was rooted in the anti-colonial national liberation movements that came about with the support of the socialist camp at the end of World War II. So I don't think it's going to be a problem for the U.S. to make peace with the Taliban. There may be some wrinkles in the relationship, but I don't think there's anything about the Taliban that would make it impossible for the U.S. to have a very good relationship. The reason the war has gone on and on and on is no previous political leader or the Pentagon generals wanted to take responsibility for the withdrawal, which would obviously show that the U.S. had been militarily defeated. And so people kept dying so that political leaders inside and outside the military weren't embarrassed. That's the only reason this is you know, continued. I completely agree with you. I think it's totally plausible. And, you know, there would even be a potentially a common enemy, right? And that would be China. I mean, Afghanistan shares a border with the Xinjiang region of Northwest China. And, you know, the ideological similarities, again, between the Taliban and the principal separatist forces in Xinjiang that have been responsible for a wave of terrorist attacks that have been sort of put down in the last few years, but were a huge social problem not too long ago. You know, that could be a point of collaboration between the United States and the Taliban. Let's go to another story. Esther, we're hearing so much from U.S. government officials, first the Trump administration and now the Biden administration, that they care about the lives of indigenous people. They care about Muslims. They want to make sure there's no ethnic cleansing. As long as the government that's targeted for having done such things, which would be the People's Republic of China, and again, without evidence, it's almost amazing to think the U.S. government or the Canadian government, given their history of genocide with indigenous people, could be leading the charge against anybody, China or anybody, for the crime of genocide against indigenous people. Again, more indigenous children's graves are turning up at these schools, which were part of the ethnic cleansing operation, not just in Canada, but also in the U.S. Let's just talk about the latest news there. Well, the latest is that the United States is also going to launch an investigation into Native American boarding schools and work to find the remains of children who died in them. And this was announced by Interior Secretary Deb Haaland. So we know that these Native American boarding schools are in the news right now because of the unmarked graves and the remains of what are now hundreds, up to a thousand children being found in Canada at boarding schools there. 
And there are even researchers and specialists in Canada who say that they may eventually find the remains of up to 15 to 20,000 children in unmarked graves there. And so the real concern here among people who are following this in the United States is that the United States had far more of these schools than existed in Canada. So if this is the result that they're finding in Canada, the idea is that there could be a far worse result here in terms of the number of children who were basically kidnapped, taken away from their families over 150 years from their native communities, their nations, and put forcibly into these schools. This is cultural genocide. What was committed against all these Native American nations, this is the cultural genocide, not what they are alleging in China, but we have a real live example here right in our own country of tens of thousands of children taken from their families to eradicate their Indianness, to take away their culture, to force them to assimilate into, I guess, American culture. I'm not really sure what American culture they were supposed to assimilate into, but that's what's what's supposed to happen. And so we'll see. I mean, this is just announced. There's no detail about how this investigation will happen, when it will start, who will carry it out, but it was the Department of the Interior that was in charge of this whole operation with these schools. So it's under her agency, the first Native American woman to hold that post or to hold a cabinet position to overlook this. And she actually, when she was still in Congress, she proposed legislation to actually open this type of investigation more than a year ago. Nicole, as we start to wind down here, I have one more story before we get to the Liberation News primary articles, big articles from the newsletter. And that is what's happening to Donald Trump's chief financial officer, Ellen Weisselberg, and the Trump organization itself. Trump organization and CFO, Ellen Weisselberg, indicted on tax charges. I mean, everybody by now knows the story. But we want to explore it a little bit about what's actually going on here. Quote, this is the Wall Street Journal. The first criminal allegation stemming from New York prosecutors probe into the former president's business affairs. A New York grand jury has indicted the Trump organization and its chief financial officer with tax related crimes that were made public last week. These charges hope to prove that the company and longtime chief financial officer Ellen Weisselberg are a blow to former President Donald Trump, who has fended off multiple criminal and civil probes during and after his presidency. But the initial charges won't implicate Mr. Trump himself, his lawyer said, falling short of expectations about the high-profile probe that included a battle over Trump's tax returns decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in the prosecutor's favor. Now, Nicole, we have been talking about for the last six months or more, now nine months, why Donald Trump went to such extreme lengths to overturn the election results from November. Everyone was telling Trump it's a lost cause. The courts, including many that were you know, with judges appointed by Trump or other Republicans, ruled across the board against his efforts. The Republican Party itself established that the results were certifiable. The Electoral College met in December and certified the elections. Then on January 6th, the Senate, under the leadership of Mike Pence, was involved in basically a ceremonial event you know, designed to certify the elections. This is part of the constitutional process for the peaceful transfer of power. And Trump was like, no, this is rigged. This is stolen. We have to fight. We have to do whatever. And finally, on January 6th, he actually encourages the storming of the Capitol building by tens of thousands of his supporters to stop the certification. And as people were trying to figure this out, what was motivating Trump? What was really motivating Trump when it looked like he wasn't going to succeed? Why take such extreme actions and actions that ultimately led to his losing his platform on social media, led to so many people being indicted, others being arrested. 
Trump basically, even if he's still, you know, the most important and most popular Republican politician, his star has been, you know, basically tarnished big time. Major corporations that dealt with the Trump organization boycotted them, access to advertising stopped, you name it. Why did he do it? We've been saying from the beginning that Trump was desperate to avoid exactly this, that if he left the White House, he would lose the immunities that come with the office. And he knew that Democratic Party led prosecutions in New York, but also in other states were ongoing. And that Trump as a business person involved in real estate in particular would have been engaged in all kinds of activity that was not legal because that's what all the real estate developers and basically the big capitalist corporations do. They try to avoid taxes. They use legal, so-called legal loopholes. They use any means they can uh, for money. And Trump knew this is what was coming. Anyway, I want to get your thoughts. And don't forget, Ashley Babbitt also died that day on January 6th. Yeah, I mean, it's very obvious, very clear that Trump wasn't doing this for anybody else. Trump wasn't doing this, wasn't trying to essentially steal the election for, you know, any sort of specific policies he wanted to enact or any sort of, you know, diplomacy that he really wanted to get into. I mean, it obviously wasn't about that. This was about him. Everything has been about him. And when you look back at the presidents that we normally have, we don't have businessmen as presidents, right? Like these are politicians. There are these career politicians who get up there. Trump is somebody who actually had a lot to lose. He's a businessman in a capitalist economy. So of course, because this capitalist system, he's had just like all these other businessmen, myriad crimes, myriad financial, you know, I'm sure fraudulent issues in the past. He's he inherited all this money from his dad and he has done well with it. He's run around with these very corrupt business dealings for, you know, pretty much most of his life. And then, you know, the notable thing that we've talked about on the show, too, is that nobody expected Trump to win, including Trump. Brian, I didn't know this until today, but you told me, <laughs> and now I've read about it in an old article, he actually had booked vacation plans for the day after the election. He didn't think he was going to win. He was headed off on a vacation. You know, he just wanted to raise his profile, sell some more books. You know, it's the same deal as getting on, you know, these reality TV shows. That's always been his thing. It's very clear to see when you see him speak, when you see him you know, do what he does. But his goal was always to get out of serving time in prison. And the house of cards, so to speak, is really coming down around him right now. Yeah, I'm looking at an article in the Wall Street Journal. It's one of the opinion writers. His name is Holman W. Jenkins Jr. Here's It's from July 2nd. Donald Trump looked crestfallen amid his victory on election night 2016. As I duly related some weeks later, sociologist Ann Nassauer, applying well-established metrics, told me, quote, we can only speculate as to why President-elect Trump showed facial expressions of sadness. It is surprising that he showed these expressions directly after his victory in the election, close quote. Then the author goes on, speculating wasn't hard. This week is why. Mr. Trump, who is not the fool some imagine, knew winning the presidency was a dangerous mishap from a personal legal standpoint. Mr. Trump, until then, mainly tussled with Sharpies who wanted only some of his money, not his destruction. Quote, it's political, close quote, Mr. Trump says of this week's charges. And then the writer goes on. Yes, inevitably. And partly, that's why people with Mr. Trump's deep pockets and checkered history are unwise to go into politics, however much it might benefit the nation, uh, blah, blah, blah. The charges brought by Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. and New York Attorney General Letitia James are over the top for what amounts to tax violations related to employee compensation. Larceny, he asks question mark, who stole what from whom? And then the author goes on and says, what Trump was doing and the auditing firms that Trump was using are the same things that every business does, every capitalist does, every real estate developer does. And so the author is making the point that Trump was sad, did not expect to win, 
was, as you said, Nicole, planning a vacation. He had his private jet, you know, buzzing on the tarmac, ready to go. Nobody expected, including Donald Trump, for Trump to win. Everybody thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. The fact that she didn't win was for a combination of unforeseeable events. And we're going to talk more about that in a coming show because we want to go back to what actually happened on January 6th and what happened later on January 6th. But right before the November 2016 election, the real body blow for Hillary Clinton was that FBI Director James Comey, right before the election, announced that the FBI was reopening the investigation, meaning it could lead to criminal charges against Hillary Clinton for her role in keeping her State Department emails off of the State Department server and on her own private server, and that Hillary Clinton had destroyed many of those emails once the story came to light after WikiLeaks. That was a body blow to Hillary Clinton. She blamed Bernie Sanders. She blamed the media. She blamed the Russians. But she especially blamed James Comey for his role in casting doubt about her personality and perhaps her criminal culpability right before the election. So here we have Donald Trump is now experiencing the thing that he was trying to avoid, which is the criminal prosecutions in New York. And even if the CFO, Weisselberg, doesn't turn state's evidence, and right now it looks like he's staying loyal to Trump, this is only the beginning of the investigation, and this is going to go on and on, and they're going to go after Don Jr., they're going to go after Eric Trump. This is going to be the Trump family future, and Donald Trump knew this on January 6th, when he made really a last-ditch, desperate effort to have the election outcome overturned. We didn't get to cover the military in their recent testimony before Congress, having to basically talk about, defend the teaching about systemic racism in the military. Lloyd Austin's had this, what they call a review or stand down in the military, where they've been really addressing racism in the military, you know, after January 6th. And the other thing that's happened since then is that President Biden has said that he strongly supports Austin's decision to press Congress to remove the investigation and prosecution of sexual assault cases in the military from the armed forces chain of command. And, you know, this has been a longstanding controversy, something that women's groups have been protesting, sexual assault advocates have been advocating for because sexual assault is rampant in the military. And right now, if you are assaulted, you have to go to your chain of command or your commanding officer, but that person could be your rapist. That person could be the person who assaulted you. So this is really important. It's something that we need to continue to watch. Austin wants to remove the prosecution of sexual assault, domestic violence, child abuse, and retaliation from the military chain of command. Also to have sexual harassment added as an offense and also you know, make other changes that Biden is supporting him on. Thank you for that, Esther. Let's go to our last story. It's the Liberation News articles. Walter, you are the editor of liberationnews.org, a socialist website. What's the latest? Yeah, that's right. Go to liberationnews.org, and at the very top, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. One that I definitely want to draw everybody's attention to is an article titled A Long and Winding Road Marking 100 Years of the Communist Party of China. It's written by Ken Hammond, who we've had on this show several times. This article talks about why the centennial of the Communist Party of China is such a huge deal. The Communist Party of China established the People's Republic in 1949, and in the decades leading up to that, led a ferocious struggle against all sorts of domestic and international opponents of China's independence and sovereignty and of the rights of the workers and peasants of China. There were many different twists and turns along the way. There were new challenges that they had to encounter, new alliances they had to make 
to face those challenges. There were mistakes, missteps, retreats, reversals. But of course, China has now emerged as a leading world power, completely ending what is referred to in Chinese history as the century of humiliation. So definitely check out this article, A Long and Winding Road, Marking 100 Years of the Communist Party of China. Another piece on the international front that I want to draw people's attention to is titled Venezuela's 200 Years of Independence Celebrated with International Bicentennial Congress. There was a major, major gathering of people's movements in Venezuela to celebrate this key anniversary and to talk about the ongoing struggle against imperialism targeting Venezuela, targeting all of Latin America, and indeed the entire world. This is written by Gloria Lariva, who led a delegation from the Party for Socialism and Liberation to this important gathering, the International Bicentennial Congress in Venezuela. And finally, on the domestic front, there's an article about a victory in a local union organizing struggle that I think has some important lessons embedded for any worker who wants to stand up and fight for their rights on the job along with their co-workers. The title of this piece is Victory for Pavement Coffee House Workers, First Union Coffee Shop in Massachusetts. Check that out and everything we have on liberationnews.org, updated daily, and sign up for our newsletter. All right, we're going to leave it there. That's in the news, but the Socialist Program will be back tomorrow with Richard Wolf, economist, Marxist economist. We'll be exploring, as we have been, basic core concepts of Marxism. And on Thursday, we'll be having our usual segment called The Real Story. So stay with us through the rest of the week. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Brian Becker.